You could say it was the start of globalization. When Ferdinand Magellan launched his crew from Spain in 1519 to find a shortcut to the Spice Islands, it didn't take long for things to turn sour. Five ships left from Sevilla. There were mutinies along the way. The fresh food ran out quickly because you have to eat that first. Coming up, find out how Magellan and his crew changed what we know about the world. We'll hear why it's a big anniversary in Spain, but not so much in his home country of Portugal. In the New World, you can't beat Mexico City for fun and atmosphere. And no matter how trendy the city's neighborhoods are getting, you can always find a touch of old Mexico just around the corner. Even the trendiest neighborhoods, you're still going to find the old coffee shop with the old men eating pan de dulce, sweet bread, and having their coffee, reading the paper. The backstory to the first sail around the world, a guide to Mexico City's neighborhoods, and your calls to help plan your next adventure. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Friends from Seville and Lisbon tell us why the big Magellan anniversary is getting more attention in Spain than in Magellan's home country of Portugal in just a minute. And the author of a guidebook to Mexico City shares her favorite neighborhoods to explore. Places where you can view remnants of the old Aztec city while sipping a coffee con leche and immersing yourself in the living history of Mexico's energetic capital. We'll also open the phones to find out what kinds of travels are on your horizon a little later in the hour on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. 500 years ago, in 1519, Ferdinand Magellan sailed from Sevilla in southern Spain to be the first mariner for his expedition to circumnavigate the world. Now, he's often given credit, but he actually died in the Philippines, and his crew in one remaining ship of his actually did succeed in sailing entirely around the world. That was a big deal, and 500 years later, starting this year, we're remembering that historic voyage. Now, Magellan was a Portuguese explorer who worked for Spain. He was hired by the Spanish king to go out and find trade routes to the Far East. We're joined by Robert Wright from Spain and Cristina Duarte from Portugal to share a Spanish and a Portuguese perspective on this exciting event. Robert, Cristina, thanks for joining us. Muito obrigada. Thank you. So Magellan, I don't get it. He was Portuguese, but he sailed for Spain and, I mean, who celebrates? Robert, what's this take from a Spaniard? You live in Sevilla. I live in Sevilla, and uh, we love Magellan. Why wouldn't we? <laughs> he did He did something good for the Spanish crane. So, as you were mentioning, uh, he worked for Charles I, or Charles V, as he's sometimes known. And back in those days, everyone was looking for a way to get to spices. They knew where they were, but, of course, the Spanish couldn't invade what had already been determined as Portuguese territory, which, after Vasco da Gama sailed around in 1497, yeah. the world was divided into two by the Treaty of Tordesillas. So first of all, in the old, old, old days, Marco Polo yeah. and his camels went overland with mm. some nice spices, but mm -hmm. that really wasn't going to be the future. Right. And the, the countries on the Atlantic seaboard, notably Spain and Portugal, they had money, they wanted to get in on that trade, so they had to carve out some of the ways to get around, though. So Magellan was a good sailor, but apparently Portugal didn't have the money so he went to Spain, and uh, King well, it's Charles a, gave him the money. It's kind of like a double kind of thing, because also, first of all, Columbus went to Portugal, and Portugal turned them down. Okay, now, Christina, you're from Portugal, and your man, Magellan... Yes. You didn't take care of him, he went to the next country, and No, and right now, him. allow me to disagree <laughs> with that. Uh, Portugal was focusing one thing, which was arriving to India. Since 1415, that we were in the ocean, so we were the first maritime country 
and we knew many things that no other other country knew about. Because your guy Vasco exactly. da Gama, he was and the, before, and before, before they sailed around since Africa since 1415 that we were going trying to arrive to India mm-hmm. by going around Africa. So when we arrived, just to give you an idea of the dates and the the span of time, Vasco da Gama is 1498. We mm. are in the ocean since 1415, so we knew. Lots of currents. We knew uh, itineraries. And you had the navigation technique. And we had the navigation technique. So when the Spaniards started to find out interest in going on also to India, we were not very interested to share our knowledge with them. Ah. So what we'd done basically was to try to figure out with them the division of the world, saying, okay, you go to west and leave us east because we want to go to East, so surrounding Africa. Okay, so Spain basically got the uh, Latin America. Portugal exactly. Kept, Portugal kept Brazil. And today, you, 500 years later, we still have this linguistic Exactly. Border. That's mm-hmm. why Brazil speaks Portuguese and the rest of Latin Americans okay. speak Spanish. So just to finish this, it was thoroughly discussed between Portugal and Spain. The agreement took almost 30 years to be signed up. And Colombo is not that we turn it out, Colombo. Colombo was married with a Portuguese Colombo woman. Colombo meaning Christopher Christ- Columbus. Christopher Columbus. Yeah. Sorry, Christopher Colombo. He was married to a Portuguese woman. Okay. And he was married to a person very influential in the royals and the court. So it is said now, it's like a little rumor. It appears that we did not turn out Colombo. He was sent like, let's say the first diplomatic spy to Spain on purpose, which is what Colombo was suggesting to the Portuguese king was, give me money to go in an expedition to west. And we knew that our way was to east. So why to spend money to give afterwards to the Spaniards? Also, a lot of the calculations that Columbus had made, the Portuguese uh, cosmographer said, oh, those are incorrect you're actually thinking that it it would take longer to get there than what you say. Well, they had a vested interest because Portugal controlled the Pacific Rim, I guess. Portugal got Asia and Spain got Latin America. Was it a little bit of a a betrayal of that treaty when Spain sent Magellan to what was agreed to be Portuguese territory? Well, it was in a way, but honestly, they they didn't know how much was over there. Right, so So it was quite an adventure. Magellan was actually married to a Sevillian woman. Yes. And so there's so all this intermix yeah. between the two countries. Yes. Okay, so Magellan, yes. the Portuguese adventure paid yes. for by the Spanish, yes. got all the way to what became known as Philippines. Yes, named because he came around. King yeah. Philip of Spain, yeah. and uh, they speak Spanish to this day. Yeah, and a, and and, a dialect uh, of Spanish. And, and he died there. Roberto, I can just imagine, they, they went with a handful of ships and a bigger crew. Magellan was killed, and they were just, like, traumatized, and they still didn't even know where they were going to go to finish this first circumnavigation of the globe. It must have been a horrific last part of the trip, and only one ship got back with a few starving sailors. What was it like? I think that uh, we tend to forget about how brave these people were, regardless of their motives, of what they were going for, the actual courage that it takes to go out into the unknown with very few supplies, only five ships, five ships left from Sevilla. There were mutinies along the way. The fresh food ran out quickly because you have to eat that first. What they're left with is really uh, old supplies. Rats, because the rats had come on board, but the rats turned into protein. 
And when, once also, you've eaten your shoes, you, a rat looks pretty good. They ate leather. <laughs> they ate leather. Anything they could to get protein. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christina Duarte and Robert Wright. We're talking about the 500th anniversary of the voyage of Ferdinand Magellan. His crew was the first to circumnavigate the planet. Robert, he didn't do it. He gets all the credit. What was the name of the man who did do it? Sebastián Elcano is the guy who took over. He was the pilot. And Christina, what do we know about this man and how in our travels do we, oh. do we celebrate him? Fernão Magalhães. He is uh, from Sabrosa, uh, from the northern part of Portugal, so in the Douro Valley. Uh-huh. He is a very, comes from a very important noble family, so in the early age he's already part of the crown and the nobility around uh, our kings. He was already on the entourage of the noble families yeah. and the king. Yeah. He made part with another with friend of him that is going to be very important. He made part of the first escort um, patrol for the our first viceroy of India in mm. Goa, so in 1498. See, this is so important when we travel to Portugal to understand the importance of yes. these amazing uh, early uh, voyages because when we go to Portugal... The churches are called pepper churches, right? Yeah. Paid for yes. by a tax on the exactly. pepper that was brought. And these incredible churches, when we look at the architecture, it's got ropes, it's got seashells, it's yes. got sails, it's got all these motifs from the sea. Because for Portugal, it was a world power because of these adventures, these voyages, exactly. these explorers. And when we go to Portugal, Christina, what will we look for now? What are three or four examples of sites that will relate to this kind of... Mainly Belém district in Lisbon because it's all related with the discoveries, most of our caravels, so the name of the boat that took mm-hmm. us to Orient because it was light and with a, a maneuver system of uh, sails. That, so the uh, Portuguese high-tech boat was the yes, caravel exactly, and it could caravel. catch the wind and go yes, upwind. It could exactly. tack back and forth. This let it go farther away from the coastline exactly, exactly. and easier to get around. And this is in Belém, B-E-L-E-M, yes. a suburb 20-minute ride from Lisbon. Uh, a little bit in food also. And the bit on food is that although we were there for the trade of the spices, the spices were way too expensive to use them in our food. So Portuguese food is not spicy because we were selling the food. Although in our desserts, we have lots of oriental, of your oriental influence, using of the honey and of course the, the cinnamon. So, Robert, what was the influence of all of this excitement about Magellan and so on? How did it impact the Spanish economy and and history after that? It changed the game because once the ship came back from all the way around the world, they knew how to get to the Spice Islands without having to enter Portuguese territory. So they could actually go and pick it up and sell them as well. They could have backtracked from the Philippines. Mm -hmm. They considered that Mm. because they were entering into Portuguese territory. But the currents go the opposite way, and they weren't quite sure how to get back. And if they had gotten back, Mexico had not yet been conquered by the Spaniards. So they would have been on the west coast of Mexico and unable to cross to the Caribbean, which they had control of. Tour guides Christina Duarte from Lisbon and Robert Wright, who now lives in Seville, are helping us celebrate 500 years since Magellan's crew proved that you really could sail all the way around the world. There's more on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Just to wrap things up, for this celebration, and it's not a certain day, it's the next three years because that was the duration of the voyage, as travelers, what will we find? Christina, is there any celebrations? What do we look for? Well, in Portugal, there will be not the celebration. We feel proud because it was Portuguese, but we are not going to celebrate that because it's not a historical event 
that is for the Portuguese event, historical. Good to know. Yes. So there's lots going on with no. just explorers and discoverers, but not specifically no. to celebrate 500 years of Magellan. And Robert, in Spain. In Spain, we're definitely going to celebrate. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and, and what he might we it. see as we travel? Uh, what will probably be going on for most of the three years is they have made a reproduction of the ship that made it back. It was the now Victoria, and that was the one vessel that did return. And they have made a saleable reproduction. And it is at the dock in the port of Sevilla and different cities around Spain. And it will they've taken it around the world already, but they will be going to different countries around the world. And you might see it when you're in Spain because it'll probably be traveling up in the Basque country as well. Okay, you can actually walk on board, see how the sailors lived, compare the the size of the cabin where the captain uh, slept and then where everybody else slept outside. Really a chance to imagine what it was like for Magellan and his guys Mm -hmm. 500 years ago. And all my traveling days, I've gone to Sevilla and I've seen that great port there with the Golden Tower and it's been so evocative to me, but there's never been an old boat there. And now we've got a a, boat. There's never been a, a more perfect time. Robert Wright, Christina Duarte, thank you so much. Muito obrigada. Gracias. We'll open the phones at 877-333-RICK to check in on your travel plans in just a bit. But first, we're finding adventures in the new world with tips for experiencing Mexico City one neighborhood at a time. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. The ancient capital of the Aztec Empire is now the massive capital city of Mexico. Mexico City has grown into an important cultural and business hub. You could even say it's the most influential city in Latin America. There's more than 150 museums, gorgeous parks, and some of the most vibrant markets and hip eateries in the Americas. It's a sprawling metropolis of some 20 million, and it's full of surprises and contradictions that make the city worth the effort it requires to explore. We're joined now by Julie Mead. She writes the Moon Guidebook to Mexico City. Julie fell in love with the city on her first visit some 20 years ago. She's here to help us explore Mexico City one neighborhood at a time. Julie, what was it about Mexico City that drew you in? And and what about it made you want to leave California and actually live there for 10 years? Well, it's hard to say exactly. It's a city like no other in the world. And um, I was a young woman early out of college, and I traveled there for the first time. And the energy of the place, the fact that it was so close to my, my home in California growing up, and yet felt so different, so foreign, so many worlds away. Those things really drew me in. And I wanted to feel a change in my life. And that city just felt like it could bring it about. It felt powerful. Every time I fly there, I'm just, you know, you you connect from Houston or or wherever, and it's you're there in a couple hours. And you realize, wow, this is a completely different cultural capital. And it's not even on the radar of so many American travelers. So many people go to Cancun or, or the resorts on the West Coast, and they're missing something when they skip Mexico City. What's the vibe lately? And what are the challenges for the American visitor? What you're describing is true, but it is beginning to change. A lot of people have recently recognized Mexico City as a wonderful place to visit culturally, culinarily. So tourism has been taking off, especially with a sort of younger hipster crowd. You've got a lot of cool bars, lots of great foodie restaurants, tons of museums and galleries. A bunch have opened in the last decade. So you're getting a lot more tourism than, say, when I first moved there in 2001, 
you know, it was rare. You would see a tourist maybe in the centro with their backpack looking at the ruins or at the anthropology museum. But now people go for all sorts of reasons. They go to go out. They go for the food. They go to check out cool galleries and underground poetry readings. Mm. So it's definitely changed over the past 20 years. Now, when you fly in, it seems like it sprawls forever. In fact, it's one of my favorite views that an airplane window is coming into Mexico City because you just think, whoa, 20 million people or whatever it is. But, you know, you can think of Mexico City as a collection of neighborhoods, and that does make it a little easier, doesn't it? It certainly does. It's very provincial in a way. Um, You can go from one neighborhood to another, and each one feels like its own distinct city with its own community and vibe and things to do there. Let's just go through them, because your book covers the city so well, it pulls it down to size, and we can deal with it one neighborhood at a time. First of all, you have Mm -hmm. the Central Historical District. What is that? Well, that's the oldest district in the city. 500 years ago, when the Spanish arrived in the Valley of Mexico... There was a little island in the middle of a huge lake, and that was the Aztec city of Tenochtitlan. That city is what today is considered the Centro Histórico, the very oldest neighborhood in Mexico City. Hmm. So that's where the Spanish, after the conquest, built their own capital, the capital of New Spain. And they named it after the people who are living there. The Mexica people is where Mexico gets its name. So that little island became the founding neighborhood of Mexico City. And it's got this beautiful old colonial architecture. So that's and where it's we got find lots the, of, the big square, the Zo- Zocalo. That's right, the Zocalo, which is the main square. Was, it was called the Plaza Mayor in, mm-hmm. throughout all of the colonial era. And today it's called the Zocalo because it adjoins the cathedral. Plaza Mayor, yeah. So if, you, if you've been to Spain, it's just, it's another Plaza Mayor. Every town has a great exactly. square with the cathedral facing it. And, and it just makes sense that there you would find the colonial area, era palaces and chapels and grand buildings. It's a great area to explore from a sightseeing point of view. Do you actually see any Aztec remains? You do. And I think that's one of the most fascinating elements of visiting Mexico City in general. Right there, right adjoining the cathedral, which the Spanish built, was the most holy temple for the Mexica people. And when Cortes conquested the city, they raised the Mexica city of Tenochtitlan, and they built their city right on top of it using the same bricks from the pyramids that they felled. And they built over it so completely that everyone forgot where it was. They forgot that the city was underneath the Spanish city. Yeah, those conquistadors, they built right on the (laughs) holy spot. We're exploring Mexico City's neighborhoods on Travel with Rick Steves with Julie Mead. She's the author of The Moon Mexico City Guidebook. Julie has spent more than a decade getting to know Mexico's capital, from its grand attractions to its earthy delights. You'll find web links to her work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. All right, so you built your holy spot on top of their holy spot. That's the Zocalo, and you, yeah. you, you decorate the whole big square with your colonial infrastructure. And today, as tourists, 400, 500 years later, that's the number one thing to see, probably. But a lot of people uh, are drawn to the, what is it, Alameda Central? Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, Alameda Central was the first big park in Mexico City. It was the first uh, public strolling park, and that's sort of on the western end of the Centro. And uh, the big attraction there, in my opinion, is the beautiful, beautiful Palacio de Bellas Artes, the Palace of Fine Arts. And that's with the and Diego that's Rivera? A, That does have a Diego Rivera mural in it, a famous one that Rockefeller commissioned and then threw a fit when it had communist themes in it. And so they relocated it to that palace. But it's also just an amazing building, a beautiful marble building. And on the inside, it has one of the most spectacular Art Deco interiors you can imagine. Mm. 
So that's definitely worth a visit okay. right on the Alameda Central. And uh, also, what, colonial-era churches are there? Museum of Popular Yeah, there Art. are several. Throughout the entire Centro Historico and the Alameda, that whole area is just replete with beautiful colonial-era mansions, palaces, churches. A lot of the giant convents and churches were destroyed during the reforms of the 19th century, but there still remains of religious buildings and convents all throughout the Centro. It's really fascinating and beautiful. It's one of the most captivating places in Mexico. So one place that has historically been the tourist zone is the Zona Rosa. What's that like these days? The Zona Rosa has come and gone in terms of um, its fashionableness. It was a very fashionable place to hang out in the 60s and 70s. It was sort of the heart of bohemian culture. And since then, it's become a little less noisy, chaotic. It's right next to the Paseo de la Reforma, so a lot of business people passing through. So it's 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 kind of the ugly end of tourism to me. The the Juarez neighborhood is a little more trendy, isn't it, right next to it? Yeah. You know, the Zona Rosa has lots of beautiful architecture, too. But in the Juarez, you're seeing it preserved in a more historical way. There aren't as many, you know, um, fast food restaurants. It's quieter. You know, the Zona Rosa sort of gone that way more. But that doesn't mean there aren't interesting things there. You know, there are some really great Korean restaurants because that's where a lot of the local Korean population lives. So there's fun things to explore, even in places that seem like they are a little down at heel now. Mm -hmm. There's still really interesting things to see. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Mead. Her book is The Moon Guide to Mexico City. And we're learning just what to do when you get to this overwhelming city. When you do tackle the city neighborhood at a time, it is very reasonable to get your brain around it. Let's talk about San Rafael. Oh, San Rafael is a really interesting neighborhood to visit to because it's a very old neighborhood. It was one of the first places when... The aristocratic families wanted to start moving out of the Centro. They started moving into these new suburban neighborhoods. Right now, they feel like they're right next door, you know, that's walkable between the Centro Historico and the San Rafael. But at that time, they built their mansions there. It was like moving out into the country. And now all of those buildings, they've been there for hundreds of years, and now they have mechanic shops and little taquerias in them. It's a really vibrant neighborhood with lots of people walking around the street. There's some cool coffee shops, but mostly it's just a lot of old-time places. And that's a really fun place to explore on foot. If you wanted to go to some real neighborhood in a less random way, that was a working-class neighborhood with vibrant markets and just a slice of life of urban Mexico, what would you recommend? The San Rafael is a good working-class neighborhood to explore, as is the Santa Maria La Ribera, which is Mm -hmm. just a little bit further out from the San Rafael and if, and if you're looking for some vivid little slice of life, what would it be? I mean, I remember these old-fashioned tortilla machines that were just so beautiful and they're so rickety, and they would just be cranking out endless uh, little tortillas. Yeah. Yeah, well, there are definitely lots of those. I think there's a lot of places in Mexico City where you can find really long-running, vibrant culture. You know, there's tons of coffee shops. Mexico grows a lot of coffee, and there have always been a great coffee culture there. So that you can, you know, walking down through any neighborhood, even the trendiest neighborhoods, you're still going to find the old coffee shop with the old men eating pan de dulce, sweet bread, and having their coffee, reading the paper. Those sort of places are everywhere. Now, you wrote about that in your your Moon Guidebook to Mexico City. You you wrote about how that's how you find a little intimate corner of the local cultures, going to a coffee shop. What about Chapultepec? Well, Chapultepec is Mexico City's gigantic urban park. It's more like a forest than a park. It's a beautiful park, and it's also the site of some of the most important museums in the city, notably the absolutely unmissable and absolutely spectacular Anthropology Museum. 
that's what brings a lot of tourists to Chapultepec is to spend a day or half a day wandering through the Anthropology Museum. But it's also worth taking a spin around the park itself, which is shaded by these old cypress trees that have been there for hundreds of years. And it's actually been a park since the time of the Mexica for Tenochtitlan, the Aztec city or the Mexica city. Chapultepec was a park that the rulers would go out and spend a day in the country or an afternoon in the country. So it's always sort of been this country place. And then later the Spanish did the same. You mean Um, mean the conquistadors didn't just take over a bunch of uh, groveling, barbaric, barely human (laughs) animals? I mean, they were actually civilized in Mexico when when the Spaniards came? In fact, the Spanish were blown away when they saw the city of Tenochtitlan. It was enormous and orderly, and it had beautiful, spectacular markets. They couldn't believe it. In fact, it was all ribboned by canals. Isn't that an amazing thing, to think that Europeans have conned themselves into thinking that they just were, you know, invading heathens and and giving them (laughs) Christian faith, when, when really these were very sophisticated societies and beautiful cities in some cases. Mexico City was compared to Venice at the time, and it had all those canals and and an amazing system of government, and Cortez happened to be able to go in there and, because of a few quirky little lucky breaks, was able to conquer Mexico. Yeah, and a lot of what we know about the city today or about Tenochtitlan, about the Aztec city, is from the Spanish chronicles. You know, they wrote about it. They were blown away by what they saw when they came to Tenochtitlan. You can learn about that at the National Museum of Anthropology, and that's in the Chapultepec area. And I'll tell you, if you're going out into the countryside and going to be visiting some of the ruins and so on, you've you got to see this first. And if you're not going to get a chance to go to the countryside, then you need to see this also. It's just, it's a beautiful museum, and it's so important to gain an appreciation of pre-Columbian uh, Mexico. That's right. What it's about the what place. about the the neighborhood called Roma? Well, Roma is today probably the hippest, coolest neighborhood in Mexico City. But uh, it was built originally in the 19th century, so or at the very beginning of the 20th century, actually. So it's also a place with lots of gorgeous architecture, a lot of eclectic architecture, some beautiful Art Nouveau architecture. And for a long time, it too was a sort of working class neighborhood. But little by little, it's become the hot spot in Mexico City. So this is the place to go. If you are a foodie, the Roma is the place to go. There's really wonderful restaurants of all types, great nightlife, bookshops, great shopping, cool boutiques. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Julie Mead, and she writes the Moon Guidebook to Mexico City. And Julie, in your guidebook, you've got this wonderful list of top sites and Cantina culture made the list of a top, quote, site. Uh, (laughs) Why would you rate cantina culture right up there with all the great museums and galleries? (laughs) Well, I think that it's a pretty unique and wonderful part of life in Mexico City. There are cantinas everywhere. Cantinas can sort of range from a place that really is just sort of a bare bones bar where the neighborhood locals are going to get together and talk and play dominoes and everybody knows each other and they maybe serve some peanuts to a place where you can have a full sit-down meal where every drink you order comes with a plate of food and some of the cantinas are even really good dining destinations you know they're well known in the city as a place to eat so it's a really low-key version it's a nightlife sort of thing or an afternoon evening place to go out and get together but it's a very low-key it sounds kind of like a tapas bar in Spain. Is it is it a vestige of the Spanish colonial experience? 
Well, that's a good question that I don't know the answer because, to. Because, I, I mean, I you, got that, you yeah. got that wonderful ambiance. You know, you can just stay a while, atmosphere, and, and, and fun, mm-hmm. you know, work-a-day food in a tapas bar in Spain. And it sounds like you got the same thing in a cantina in Mexico City. What's one tip to be sure you fit right in in the cantina culture? Well, the best tip would be to learn if the lyrics to some popular songs in Spanish. But ah. since that's kind of a tall order... I guess I'd say, don't drink your Corona with lime. People don't do that in Mexico City. Oh, that's a good tip. Don't put (laughs) lime in your Corona. I think a lot of people think that would be going super local, but you're being super gringo. Now, if you want to even be more local, you can drink the uh, intoxicating drink. Talk about the the pulque. Pulque is a fermented beverage. It's made from the sap of the maguey cactus, and it's been drunk in Mexico since mm, long before the conquest. And it was really popular. During the time when the Mexica ruled Mexico, they were very abstemious people. They wouldn't let anybody drink pulque except for the priests and the noblemen. But once they fell and the Spanish took over, well, everyone said, great, let's drink pulque because it's a delicious sort of fizzy, sort of slimy, which sounds terrible, but it's not. It's delicious drink that then is usually flavored with a fresh fruit, um, guava, mango, so it's, maybe it's, a peanut flavor. It's a fermented sap of cactus that's slimy mm-hmm. and flavored with other fruits. Sounds, sounds exactly. so good, but it's not, it's not exported. There's, there's no big commercial production? Well, there can't be because pulque is something that has to be drunk within a day or two of its production. So oh, all okay. of the pulque, Mexico City is a big place to drink it because most of the production of pulque is in the ranches right around Mexico City and the states around Mexico City. And really, it has to be pulled out of the cactus and fermented. And within a day or two, it has to be consumed. So there's hmm. n- no way to really export pulque. Can, can you get drunk on it? Yeah, you got to drink a lot, though. It's a very low alcohol content. I mean, you can feel the effects of it after. Usually it's served, actually, in very big glasses for that reason. So, you know, so if you Aztecs get a liter of it in you, you'll feel it. When Aztecs had no <laughs> yeah. option, they got drunk on pulque. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's interesting that uh, the equivalent of a of a medieval kind of mead or something like that in Europe would be making a big comeback in, in Mexico City, which is becoming quite trendy. I would think vermouth and cocktails would be more hip, but uh, there's actually an Aztec <laughs> drink that's holding its own with its own bar yeah. culture. Yeah, well, you know, you get a little bit of both, actually. And nowadays, so a traditional pulqueria, the places where they serve pulque, there are some that have been around for over 100 years. Well, those places serve pulque and nothing else. And they serve it in the daytime. You know, they open at 10 o'clock in the morning. They're done by 6. The pulque is gone. That's a traditional pulqueria. But now you can find lots of cocktail bars that might have a pulque cocktail on the menu. Julie, this has been such a great review of the neighborhoods of massive Mexico City. Congratulations on your guidebook, uh, the Moon Guidebook for Mexico City. Let's just finish with uh, an idea where I can just, if I just want to kick back and be part of the parade of local life and either sit and enjoy watching it or actually be part of it on a Sunday afternoon, where would I be in Mexico City? Well, I would say the best place to go is to the Paseo de la Reforma and then right next door to Chapultepec, the park, because on Sundays, the Paseo de la Reforma is closed to automobile traffic. It's this big old boulevard that runs all the way through the city, studded with monuments, skyscrapers on either side, and it runs through the park of Chapultepec. And they close it on Sundays so that people can ride bicycles, they can jog, take their dog on a walk, families go out, there's music, it's really fun, and you get a really great Sunday vibe. Everybody comes out, and then you can pop into the park where it's a veritable party on Sundays. It's a really family-oriented place. People are picnicking, they're floating little boats on the lakes there. Mm. I think that's a wonderful place to spend a Sunday. 
So the Paseo de Reforma, a boulevard closed to cars on a Sunday when filled with people enjoying a beautiful afternoon, and then from there head over to Chapultepec Park. Mm-hmm. That's what I would recommend. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Qué bonita, mi linda capital, la bien llamada ciudad de los palacios, ciudad de México, distrito federal. 877-333-7425 is our phone number, and you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Next up, we check in with you, our listeners, about your latest travel plans. Thanks for coming along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Every once in a while, we like to check in with you, our traveling listeners here on Travel with Rick Steves. Tell us where you're looking to go next and if you need a little help figuring out what to plan for. Casey's calling from Prescott in Arizona. Hi, Casey. Hi, Rick. I'm planning what I'm hopefully is going to be an epic trip to Spain, but I wanted to know um, what like small villages or towns should I make sure I see and then if I had to choose between Madrid and Barcelona, which one should I spend more time in? Okay, well, Spain's a huge country, and there's thousands of villages that I'm sure are <laughs> delightful. i I got to be honest, I don't know a lot of the villages in Spain, but I'll say that you want to kind of think of what region are you interested in. I mean, uh, the Pyrenees Mountains are just fascinating if you want that sort of alpine Spain. I mean, there's a lot of traditional culture hiding out up there. Uh, there's different regions. Uh, Spain, if you go to a Subway sandwich uh, shop in Madrid, you might find a menu with four different languages, and they're all Spanish languages. You'd have Catalan for the people in, in the northeast around Barcelona. You'd have uh, Basque for the people up in the Basque region, and you'd have Galician for the Celtic people in the northwest. And when you travel up in the northwest, there are beautiful little hideaway medieval towns that are part of the Santiago de Compostela. And uh, these are the villages that people will walk to or bicycle to these days when they're doing that trek, that medieval uh, pilgrimage trail. Uh, The most famous villages or the most classic and rewarding villages are these whitewashed villages in the hills down in the south in Andalusia. To a lot of Americans, their image of Spain really is Andalusia. That's the quintessential Spanish sort of uh, flamenco, you know, world. The famous uh, region in, in Andalusia is the root of the Pueblos Blancos, the, the root of the whitewashed hill towns. And uh, your jumping off point is the biggest of those hill towns, and that would be Ronda. Uh, it's no secret, uh, a lot of tourists go to Ronda, but it is just an amazing town on a gorge with a dramatic bridge connecting the two sides of the gorge with a modern town on one side and an older town on the other side. And um, from there you can drive into the hills and find these uh, just gorgeous, dramatic, whitewashed hill towns that were put way up on the top of these hills for defensive purposes. So personally, I would go to the route of the Pueblos Blancos. I've always loved that. Near Sevilla, near Ronda, near Arcos. While you're down there, Arcos is famous for um, the Spanish Riding School and also for Sherry. Now you're talking about Madrid, and what were you thinking, Madrid and Barcelona? Yes, I couldn't decide or which one I should spend more time in or maybe just forget one and spend all my time in the other. So well, any thoughts you have on that? You know, Barcelona is suffering lately because it's just too popular. The mayor is actually thinking about how can we, you know, keep tourists uh, from flooding into our city. The local people are actually getting a little bit ornery about tourists changing the character of all of their their neighborhoods. Barcelona is a place where Airbnb has come in and driven up the the rents. I mean, Airbnb doesn't drive it up. It just gives landlords an opportunity to make a lot more money renting out to travelers instead of renting out to local pensioners and so on. So that drives away the local people into the suburbs, and 
the characteristic neighborhoods are suddenly without the the local population that makes it really characteristic. And instead of uh, real produce in the markets, you've got slushies and fruit on skewers and that kind of thing for all the tourists. So, you know, you go to Barcelona and you think about the Ramblas and you think about the Bocaria market and all that, and it's still there, but if you were there 20 years ago, it's, it's not the same thing because now it's just overrun by tourists. Having said that, I love Barcelona, but you really got to anticipate it's gonna, the streets are just going to be mobbed with, with tourists. Whereas Madrid feels just more like a, a workaday capital. Madrid, to me, is uh, you feel the pulse of Spain and Madrid beautifully. I love the architecture of the skyscrapers on the Gran Via, and you can just trace the evolution of uh, skyscraper architecture through the 20th century, one decade at a time, as you walk down the Gran Via. In Madrid, you've got the greatest collection of paintings anywhere in Europe at the Prado, and you've got a palace that used to house the most powerful um, king in, in all of Europe, uh, and it's a palace today that rivals Versailles in Paris and Schönbrunn in, in Vienna, and that's the royal palace in Madrid. Uh, you've got plenty of opportunities to enjoy the nightlife and the tapas and the flamenco. The best flamenco in Spain is famously uh, offered in Madrid, and you've got a chance if you want to go out and see the bullfight. That's the, the most busy bull arena in all of Spain. And you've got side trips from Madrid that I think are far more interesting than the side trips from Barcelona. Within an hour, you can go to Toledo, you can go to Salamanca, you can go to the Valley of the Fallen, and El Escorial, the big palace of the, the Inquisition Palace, the stern, serious, no-nonsense palace uh, outside of Madrid. There's just a lot to see in Madrid. So I think I'd say if you're choosing between Barcelona and Madrid, I think I'd go to Madrid. Well, I have to say I'm sold. Ah. I will definitely be spending my time in Madrid. It's going to be my first time, and all my friends have gone and told me how amazing it is, but oh, I just wanted a little more detail. Well, re- remember, uh, in Spain, uh, you've got to go with the local tempo of life, okay? Uh, it's hot in the middle of the day. You'll either want to be indoors or take a nap or a siesta and then be out in the evening. Things are just really hopping in the evening, and there's something just wonderful about having the whole community out for the paseo in the evening, uh, when I'm doing my research for my guidebook, if I'm trying to look at restaurants at noon and at 6, they're just empty. I mean, if anything, the staff will be eating. But you come back at 2 o'clock for lunch, and they start to serve. And for dinner, you can have 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, you'll have the dinner. Uh, one thing to remember, if you go early, it'll be touristic in the restaurants, which is not bad. It's it's easier, it's a little more relaxed. Uh, and then if you go later it won't be touristy at all. It'll be filled with locals. The same restaurant can have two different personalities. And for a lot of touristy, you have to be pretty aggressive if you're trying to get served at 10 o'clock because all the local people are in there and, and they get favored by the wait staff because they can uh, speak directly and, and they know they're, they're just good, solid customers, whereas tourists are going to be kind of high maintenance and everything. So not to say you shouldn't go there, but if you go in the evening, you're going to have to know a few Spanish words and you're going to have to belly right up to that bar and demand some service if you're going to get any respect. I like the challenge. I think I'll go that route. Go for it. <laughs> That's so good. Also, there's a lot of uh, sort of entrepreneurs now that are into different kinds of travel experiences. I think wherever you're going in Spain, if you go to TripAdvisor, type into the city, and then you go to Things to Do. I do not take very much uh, serious consideration of eating and sleeping places in TripAdvisor, but I really like the Things to Do section because then you can see, oh, there's a cooking school or, oh, there's a a walking tour or, oh, there's some sort of a special uh, experience with this or that slice of the culture. 
anybody who's trying to make money in tourism will have their little business listed in TripAdvisor Things to Do. And you can browse through that, and then you can go over to that website and uh, take advantage of that. And, and that's how I find out about a lot of great activities while I'm in these towns year after year. I love that idea. I like um, being more engrossed in the culture and, and celebrating the smaller businesses as opposed to the large oh, yeah. ones that are just everywhere. That is so important because, you know, the, the large companies, they have the connections with the hotels and the, they got their advertising all over the place and they're in with the booking agencies and so on. But the smaller, feisty little mom-and-pop businesses, I find they are just really creative. They love their work and they, when you're done with it, you feel like you've got a friend in that town. Exactly. I got to celebrate that tenacity of the small business. Good for you. Hey, have a great time. Thank you, Rick. Okay. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. We're checking in with you, our listeners, to hear where you're thinking of traveling next. We're at 877-333-7425 and by email, you can reach us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Dorothy's calling in from Ottawa in Ontario. Hi, Dorothy. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I'm yeah. just phoning because I'd like to know what my sisters and I should be doing when we visit Amsterdam for a few days. Well, Amsterdam, you could spend a lot of time in Amsterdam, and you could spend just as much time outside of Amsterdam. Remember, the Netherlands is really small and very well accessible by public transportation, so Amsterdam could be your hub, and you could side trip out to any number of places, depending on your interest. Okay. Um, I'd be interested in seeing dikes and how that works. There's a company that I love in Amsterdam, which is called uh, Wetland Safari. And Wetland Safari is a chance to go on a canoe ride in the Polderland with a local guide who will explain to you how the Dutch reclaimed the land and, and what the little communities were like and are like today in uh, the, you know, the kind of rural countryside. It's called Polderland. That is what was reclaimed from the sea. And the company is called Wetland Safaris. It's run by a woman named Mayel, M-A-J-E-L, I believe. But you, you go canoeing from village to village, and you realize what these charming little towns or hamlets are like, and you approach them by water. Uh, also, when that you're sounds out, wonderful. And when you're out on that, you, you realize that it's sort of a bog land, and there's a weave of organic material that makes kind of a big sod topsoil, and under that is water. And you get out of the canoe, and Mayel takes you to a little point where you can jump up and down on the sod, and you, the whole place is like a trampoline because you're literally on a big mattress uh, over the water. <laughs> and I love that. And she's just a petite uh, canoeer, and she takes a long pole, and she pushes it through the sod, and then she shoves it down 10 or 12 feet because it gets through the layer of sod, and it just hits water. And it demonstrates this remarkable Dutch terrain that a lot of us are oblivious to. So that's a fun way to get out of the city and connect with the countryside. Is it far from Amsterdam? Uh, actually, it leaves from Amsterdam. You meet her behind oh. the train station, and she takes you okay. on a public bus out to her little depot where she has her canoes. And then you get on the canoes, and you go paddling around, and you get out and demonstrate this here, and you get out and check out a windmill there, and you get out and have a picnic lunch here. And then you get out and pedal through all the ducks, and then you're back at your spot, and she takes you back to Amsterdam. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It sounds great. But that's just one of many kinds of uh, alternatives or excursions you can have from Amsterdam. Uh, you can also go directly out to the oceanfront, and there you've got beach resorts. Uh, and some of them are sand dunes and national parks and desolate kind of hikes uh, on, the, on the wide open beach. And others are really, really crowded and popular and multi-generational festivals on the sand. 
Scheveningen is a suburb of uh, Rotterdam, and everything is within an hour of Amsterdam, it seems like, on, a, on one of the trains. And the fun thing about Dutch public transit is you hardly need uh, the train schedule because four times an hour trains go everywhere, and everything's within 30 or 40 minutes away. Everything's flat, and you're out in the, in the countryside in, in no time, and then pretty soon you're at another town nearby. Harlem is a great town. Delft is a great town. Rotterdam was a big city that was bombed flat in World War II and has been rebuilt since in a modern way. In fact, it's nice to compare Amsterdam and Rotterdam, uh, Dorothy. Amsterdam is perfectly preserved. It's from the Golden Age, you know, and the canals and the elegant uh, canal-side houses. And then you go over to Rotterdam, and it's all been rebuilt since 1945, and it's got pedestrian zones and modern art decorating the plazas and glassy skyscrapers and super public transit and a futuristic train station, and it complements Amsterdam really nicely. Sounds good. There you go. I hope that gives you a few ideas, and we didn't even talk about Amsterdam, but uh, you can. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots to see and do there, and it just behooves you to uh, do your studying ahead of time so you know what your options are, okay? Okay. Thank uh, thanks you very for much. your call. Bye now. Bye. Kimberly from Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania has written us an email, and Kimberly writes On my last visit to Paris, I tried a new tactic for dinner. I found a small, very local heavy bistro that was near my lodging. The food was very reasonably priced and very good. And so I returned there the following evening and the one after that. Beyond a reliably delicious and budget-friendly meal, I became a regular there. I highly recommend this method, especially for solo travelers who tend to feel more socially isolated in the evenings. You know, Kimberly, thank you for the email. This is a very good point. When you're in a town, it could be a big town or or a small town or a big city, uh, you have the option to eat at the same place night after night after night. And uh, whereas you could make the case that it's better to go out and have the variety, there's a huge advantage of being a regular. And in Europe, they say you're a guest on the first night and a regular after that. And uh, they'll remember who you are. They'll they'll be joyful to have you back. Uh, you'll be able to eat your way through the menu. And if it was a good experience the night before, it's probably a good experience on the next night. So that's a very good tip. And I can think of a lot of places in Paris where I'd love to go night after night. Barrett's giving us a call from Dallas in Texas. Hi, Barrett. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm doing great. Are you thinking about traveling to Europe? My wife and I, we took our three uh, little kids to the U.K., starting in London, going up uh, via the high-speed train uh, to Edinburgh and kind of stopped in northern England and had a great time. We did that in October of last year. And that kind of brings me to my question for you, which is, you know, it seems like, you know, the, the amount of tourism, not only in Europe, but all over the world, but particularly in Europe, it's just it record highs, kind of no matter where you go. Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, you think to yourself, it's probably a double-edged sword. You know, you've had an amazing amount of success that you know, has pushed people to Europe, particularly Italy. And a lot of those places which you love, you know, they, they now also have those tourists there. Yeah. And um, I guess my comment is, what I've seen is that I, my advice to people is like, you know, Going to UK in the beginning part of October, the weather is amazing, but it's the crowds are, are less than they are in August. Um, so I don't know if you have other kind of tips or thoughts behind the crowds in Europe sure. and what you know places or times of year or other things like that. So you know, Barrett, I wonder if a lot more people are traveling or if everybody's just going to all the same places because. I know that the famous places are getting brutal as far as crowds go, but I spend a lot of time in places that don't have tourist crowds, and I'm always amazed at how few people there are. In fact, I would say 90% of uh, Europe north of the Alps 
crowds are not an issue. You know, uh, you, you want to avoid everybody goes to Amsterdam or everybody goes to Barcelona or everybody goes to Florence, and those are going to be crowded. But I was just in Scotland for nearly a month, and I never had a crowd problem, even in the famous places. I mean, Edinburgh, you could have crowd problems, but I thought sure, tur- sure. tourists were a blessing in Skye or, or, you know, places like uh, Glencoe because it gives you enough of uh, business for people to be open and provide nice meals or nice beds or nice tours for travelers. I was just thankful that there were any tourists up there at all. Uh, the same thing would be <laughs> yeah. true with Scandinavia. You know, the same thing would be true of um, most of Ireland. So if you are concerned about the crowds, you mentioned off-season, that's a very good idea. You know, smart travelers understand that there's no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing, and they go, they bundle up, and they, they do this traveling off-season. Uh, true, more people are able to travel now, and that's in, to a great extent because of the emerging economies. There's 100 million people in the middle class in India and 100 million people in the middle class in China that can now afford to fly to Europe, and they've always dreamed about going there, and now they're going to go to the famous places. Well, if you want to compete with uh, a little bit of uh, the Eiffel Tower, a little bit of Anne Frank's house, or a little bit of Michelangelo's David with all those people, put on your shoulder pads. But, you know, just across the street and around the corner from all of those great sites, there are other great sites that never have a crowd. So you could lose the top 20 most crowded, congested sites in Europe, and it would still be a wonderful place to travel, and you and you wouldn't have those crowds. So I wouldn't let the crowds get you too discouraged. Consider going off-season. Uh, my new ethic with my researchers when we're updating our guidebooks is if it's possible to book in advance, that means it's a good idea to book in advance, and you should take advantage of that. We're almost getting to the point in our guidebooks where we're not telling people how to get a ticket by arriving at the door for places that you can or you should book in advance. Because very, very often, if you go without a ticket to a place like the Uffizi Gallery or the Louvre or the Orsay or, or um, I don't know, uh, the Tower of London, you're going to spend hours in line. Where if you have a way to get a ticket in advance, you can walk right up to the turnstile and they'll let you in and you'll feel really pretty yeah, you smart. Feel, you feel like a rock star, you know, that's so yeah. funny. It's like if you have the Paris Museum Pass or you have a I know a that feeling. To, you walk through all these people, and you're like, man, this is great, you know, and, who, and they're thinking, who are these people? Like, well, you know, I'm just the average Joe, you know, who read my Rook Steve's guidebook and got my Paris Museum pass at the local, you know, coffee uh, shop around the corner, it's great. Isn't so. that a funny, you can almost, you got to bite your tongue, because you kind of want to say something a little bit smart, Alec, about, hey, what are you guys doing waiting in line? You should get this ticket, and you walk right by them, excuse me, I've got my ticket, excuse me, I've already got a ticket, excuse me, and you go up to the turnstile, you flash your pass, and they let you in, that's the Paris Museum pass, and you can find that in a number of cities, and of course you save money when you do a lot of sightseeing because you just pay one price, but more importantly, you save precious time, and that lets you go straight to the turnstile. So, Barrett, thanks so much for your call, and, and uh, good luck weathering the crowds over there. It's worth the trouble. Absolutely. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kaz Murrah-Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and Amara Kitnikone. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to our colleagues at Sports Byline USA in San Francisco for studio help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. 
Europe through the back door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.